As a full-time music critic for the Boston Globe, Steve Morse went to 250 shows every year for 30 years. He's witnessed some of the most landmark moments in rock history and interviewed many of the legends, including Bono, Bob Marley, and Keith Richards. During our conversation, he gives a glimpse into what made his life as a journalist exciting, but also challenging, and he passes along some wisdom for the next generation. Steve Morse, thank you so much for the opportunity to hang with you and talk music. We're here at your house, and there's a lot of memorabilia around, books and CDs, so clearly uh, I'm looking at the home of a man who is immersed in music all the time. I first moved to Boston in the uh, in the mid '80s. I've been reading your work ever since. I've always seen you as somebody who not only is stationed in Boston but has a sort of impact way beyond Boston. I think a lot of people agree with that. You've you've traveled all over the world. You've written about music all over the world. You've done your stories all over the world. Um, and I want to talk about that impact in those interviews uh, in a minute. But one thing I just learned about recently from talking to you and looking at some of your past works is that you were in London in the summer of 1969, which is really fascinating, and, and um, saw Led Zeppelin and the Stones that summer. And I'm wondering how those shows affected you, both as a fan and as an eventual rock journalist. It was just such a thrill to be over there. Uh, I was working the summer on an archaeological dig in Winchester, just as a way to get room and board to mm. stay over there. And during that time, there was the Bath uh, Music Festival. Uh, they called it the Bath Blues Music Festival in those days. And the headliners were 10 years after and Fleetwood Mac and John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Right. And the middle act on the bill was Zeppelin. Their first album had just come out. So they went on at like 7 o'clock on the B stage, <laughs> oh, like twilight. You know, they weren't right. anywhere near the nighttime. And I was 20 feet away. And I completely had my socks blown off. But also that summer, I saw, you know, the, the Hyde Park show by the Stones, which occurred right after Brian Jones died in the swimming pool accident mm. and was Mick Taylor's first show. Uh, 400,000 people at Hyde Park. And I was going through a hippie phase. I had, you know, orange stovepipe bell bottoms on. Uh, and I had some beads and I'd bought at Carnaby Street. And I had an Abe Lincoln hat, you know, oh, kind of like an opera hat. And I'm tall. I'm about six foot five anyway. And with the opera hat, I look seven feet. <laughs> and Japanese tourists are taking my picture. And, you know, I always laughed. I never got any pictures from it. But no. probably they're still sitting around, you know, watching, you know, those, some of my pictures. Uh, but they pushed me up. I'm, I'm, I'm like 25, 30 feet wow. from the stage at that show. And what I remember most about it is the Hells Angels did the security Hmm. And uh, the angels, of course, were much more peace-loving in England, didn't mm -hmm. carry weapons. Mm -hmm. And I remember Mick Jagger all day, angels, angels, we need you <laughs> over here, you know, in his British accent, right. and they'd go help people out. And then later that summer, the angels were hired to do Altamont right. in California. The American angels. The American angels yeah. in California yeah. who showed up with beer and, you know, pool sticks and mm -hmm. knives and killed somebody. Yeah. Uh, they claimed in self-defense, but, you know, and that changed the whole tenor of the, the counterculture, you know, that, that Woodstock summer and ends up in Altamont. But, yeah, it's yeah. because the Stones trusted that the, that the angels 
would be similar to the British angels. Right. They didn't they didn't vet them properly and the movie Gimme Shelter is about that a little bit and you know they really regretted, you know what happened. So you were at this show the first Stone show after Brian Jones died and Mick Taylor's first show. Mm-hmm. Um how that is a very significant moment in rock history. Um so did that sort of, at that moment, did you know you were headed for the life you were headed, that you were going to write about this music for the rest of your life? Uh, no. Um, back then, you really didn't think you could make money writing about rock and roll. Uh, the only people who seemed to make any money were writing for Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And the, the newspapers, they, you know, they freelanced it a little bit. Uh, but they didn't hire you. I was the first rock critic hired full-time at the Globe uh, when I was about 25. Um, And then, you know, there became a second rock critic hired eventually, uh, Jim Sullivan, Mm -hmm. who's still writing around. And, 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 you know, every newspaper then became chic to have a a music critic, a pop critic, they Mm -hmm. called them. You know, you'd cover more than just rock but you know mostly rock in those days um but i didn't you know my my parents wanted me to go to grad school or you know do something serious my dad was always pushing me to go to grad school or law school and i had no interest really um and i freelanced for a few years and made no more than eight thousand dollars a year Hmm. and my first marriage broke up uh the year I was hired at the Globe, which <laughs> which bothered her no end. <laughs> He's finally got a she job. Came after me for uh, you know, let's say you know some 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 money because hmm. she supported me. I mean, I'll give her credit for that. She mm-hmm. was a school teacher and she she had a real job. Right. I mean, I'm out covering you know Queen at Boston <laughs> Garden, you know Black Sabbath and right. Jethro Tull, and you know. And people kind of mocked me for it, but then I right. got hired and everybody said, oh my God, now he's in a union. And the first thing I did was I bought a, a, a nice uh, turntable sound system for my dad. And that's when he knew, oh my God, my son's actually, you know, doing something because I could never have afforded that before then. Right. Now, when you were working as a freelancer and this was around 74, 75, yeah. somewhere in there, how much did they pay you for an article back then? Oh boy. Um, I never made more than eight thousand for the year. Okay, so I honestly don't think it was more than about fifty bucks, maybe right. something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it it was, uh, and I worked a lot. I was always afraid to to say no, um, but that I cut my teeth doing that and uh, loved it. Loved the deadlines. Always was glad I worked for a daily paper, not a weekly or a monthly. Mm-hmm. I thrive under. Uh, uh, ex- ex- extreme pressure. I'm just one of those guys that can, you know, can do it. Um, and, and I would have to write reviews in, you know, 45 minutes, you know, that would be sort of 60 lines or 600 words. And, wow. y- you know, I was somebody who would, would work a long time to get my first paragraph, you know, write the, the lead as they call it. And it might take me 20 minutes to get the lead and then everything flowed from there and mm-hmm. I bang the rest of it out in 20 minutes. So, it was just kind of an unusual way of working, but so you I would, trusted it and, and, it, and, it, and it was effective for me. You would be at a show and then you would start writing that lead, what, at the show or you'd head back to the newsroom or how did that work? I, I was never that good. Uh, 
I'd keep notes, you know, whatnot. I had the set list, so I'd comment in my, my notes about certain songs. Uh, but I didn't start really writing till I hit the, you know, the typewriter. I, I actually go back to the typewriter generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, computer. Uh, but Richard Dyer, who was the classical music critic for 34 years at the Globe, he was gifted. He had uh, some kind of encyclopedic memory, uh, and he would uh, cover a lot at Symphony Hall, and he would take a cab back. He wouldn't, wouldn't drive. He'd take a cab back and compose the review in his head. Man. Compose the review in his head and then hit the typewriter or, or the, the computer, and, and it would flow out like, like uh, automatic writing. Man. He'd come in and he'd have his review done in 15 minutes, and I'd take at least 45. Well, that's not bad either. And, and I never wanted, you know, I'd go to another part of the office because I didn't want to be around Richard because you just hear him careening, you know, through the review, <laughs> and you're struggling. And right. but, but that's a gift. I've never seen anybody do automatic writing like that in you know, 15 minutes, he, he's done. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm envious. Uh, but you had to, I mean, you worked pretty quickly as well. It's interesting. You say first you had to figure out how the thing would begin, and then the rest of it would just basically spill out from there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I was always a, a, a sprinter. I mean, I always looked at, at, at journalism, reviewing as track and field. You know, some people are uh, better at writing think pieces, you know, if you will, you know, Sunday pieces, 250 line pieces where they, you know, a lot of thought, a lot of research, um, you know, they'd be more the, you know, the 10,000 meters or the marathoners or something. Right. I'd be the, the, the 100 dash to <laughs> 220. Boom. You know, you, you, you just have to do it quickly. And the best advice I ever had was from an editor who said, don't deliberate, just write. Don't mm-hmm. deliberate, just write. And, you know, the next day you'd get up and you might not always like what you saw, uh, but you got it done. Mm. So I want to ask you about all these interviews you've done. Uh, as we were emailing over the last couple mm-hmm. of days, you kept throwing out names every couple of minutes. There'd be more names coming across. So if it's okay, I'm just going to read one of these emails really quick back at you and then ask you a question about it. So this is Steve Morse in an email sent to me yesterday. Some of my more interesting interviews, Bob Marley in New York, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards various times in New York, Little Richard on the Road in his limo from Nashville to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Muddy Waters in Montreal, U2 on their plane from New York to Providence, Bonnie Raitt, Neil Diamond, and Celine Dion in L.A., different interviews, Eddie Vedder in New York, Sting in New York, Chrissy Hine in Philadelphia, Jimmy Buffett in Florida, Jerry Garcia four times, Bruce Springsteen five times, Uh, Boston bands like Aerosmith, Jay Giles, and Boston many times. And I did a ton of phoners with the likes of Madonna, Paul Simon, Metallica, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie, Eric Clapton, and Tom Petty seven times. Tom Petty seven times. Mm -hmm. So uh, then you sent me more emails, more names. Um, (laughs) So it was fun to see all of that and to to just have that watch you reminisce. Uh, I guess the question that comes to mind is... What about what were the challenges of interviewing such a wide range of musicians, and how do you prepare to interview these massive stars? Well, boy, that's that's a, a difficult question. Um, you you really um, um, it, you know you kind of get in a groove when you do it as a, as a living. 
you know, if people d- did it just once in a while, I think they'd, you know, probably die of anxiety. But it's your job. You know, you get in a groove. And uh, the Globe was sending me to New York to interview Bob Marley, for instance. And you have to always be prepared for the unexpected. Um, you you know, you go through the, the artist's discography. You, you, you know, you maybe check your past reviews of them or check some things from the, the Globe Library would be fantastic before the days of Google, you know. They'd come up with pieces to help me out. So, yeah, I'd be prepared. Um, but the Bob Marley was 11 a.m. Um, one day, and I flew down on the shuttle. I think it was a Trump shuttle, actually, if you can believe that. Um, so this was uh, around 1980, 79? About 79, yeah, just before he played the Amandla concert, mm-hmm. which was the peace concert at Harvard Stadium. Yeah, that's a big one. And, you know, um, I got I took the 9 o'clock shuttle, got into the town at, at, at 11 a.m. for the interview, the Essex Hotel, you know, right near its overlooking Central Park, next to the Plaza Hotel, you know, a lot of musicians stayed there. And I got lost on, it was, it was like, I don't know, the 14th floor or something or other. And I got kind of lost up there and I saw this kind of a cleaning person in, in the, in the hallway. And I said, gee, you know, do you know where Bob Marley's room is? And cause I knew, you know, there's sort of an entourage of people would generally stay there. And she said, yes, go down, take a right. And then just follow your nose. <laughs> and I go, Oh, what am I getting into? I go down. I, you know, suddenly I smell the ganja. Right. And knock on the door, opens up, and it's like a Cheech and Chong movie inside. There's two giant-sized Jamaican spliffs, the five-inchers going around the room. There's about five or six guys kicking a soccer ball, you know, smashing off the, the picture windows. They almost I thought they were going to just fly right over to Central Park. And Bob is in the corner on a couch reading aloud from the, the, the Bible. Wow. The book of Revelations, you know, Lion of Judah, you know, all the stuff that forms the Rastafarian religion. And nobody's paying any attention to me. You know, I'm, I'm Babylon, you know, I'm the only white guy, so to speak, in the room. And they're paying no attention to me. And I was told I had 20 minutes with Bob. And uh, 10 minutes go by and Bob's reading the Bible and the guys are kicking the soccer ball, smoking the joints. They didn't share any with me. <laughs> Uh, incidentally, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I finally just kind of panic and I, I look over to Bob and he said, Bob, I really appreciate the Bible reading, but the, the globe sent me down to talk to you about your music. You're playing, you know, Harvard stadium. Can we talk about your music? And, and that cut into him and he said, Oh my God, you're right. And he, you know, all the people, other people in the room are looking at me like, should we throw him out now? Or brother Bob, you know, get, get, what would you do? And Bob's calmed him down. He says, look, no more soccer for a minute. Just let him talk to me. Be quiet. And and he put the closed the Bible. And I went over and got an interview with him. And uh, at the end of it, um, he reopened the Bible, started, you know, again reading the book of Revelations. The soccer balls went flying off the wall again. The joints lit up again. And I marched out. <laughs> so... <laughs> You gotta be ready for the unexpected. When you look back at interviews like that and other interviews, what would you say are your strengths? You know, if if you were to reflect on them uh, and give a class, say, in interviewing, what would be some of the points you would get across? 
I would say, um, you know, really uh, don't treat them like, you know, superstars. Um, they, they really, most of them don't want that. You know, they, they want a legitimate conversation. And I think uh, often by the time that I interview people, uh, I've, I've met them. Uh, I always had a, a rule of thumb that I would try to figure out who was really going to make it, you know, the, who playing the paradise or who were, you know, playing the small clubs. Uh, for instance, Tom Petty, I mean, he, he played at the jazz workshop, which was, you know, very small and there were eight people in the room and I went backstage to meet him. So my, my rule of thumb was to meet as many of the people immediately that you thought were going to become stars. And then when you call for an interview, you say, hey, I saw him, you know, at ground zero, mm. you know, and uh, with with Tom Petty, as you mentioned a minute ago, I did seven phoners. I never did it in person with Tom, um, but I did seven phoners, and he wasn't doing much. You know, he was very anti-media for a long time, but I'd call up Tony Dimitriotis, his manager's office in L.A., and say, hey, just tell him that I'm the tall geek who met him at, at the jazz workshop in Boston. <laughs> and the word would come back, oh, yeah, Tom will talk to you. Because they appreciate if you're in there on the, the ground floor. So when you finally get, okay, to, to do bigger interviews with them, uh, hopefully you have a foundation. You know, you've reviewed them. They know you, you, you know, respect or, or, or know something about their music. Uh, I would try not to interview people that I... <laughs> disliked mm -hmm. um well it sounds like you're i mean that's a great piece of advice if you want to wind up hanging with somebody like led zeppelin 10 years after they become huge try to get to their first show yeah but that requires one to really be on top of every piece of new music that's coming out and make those kinds of assessments early well, on I, I i would robert plant i mean i remember calling and saying just you know tell him that i saw them at uh, the both music festival you know, any kind of little leg up you can get in that regard mm -hmm. uh, would, would help. And, and, of course, it helps that you, you work for the Boston Globe. And many of these people would only do one interview per market. And their management, their labels, they wouldn't overburden these guys. Unless they were younger. You know, if right. they were still at the club level, then they'd talk to everybody. The Boston Herald, the Boston Phoenix in those days. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody. College, you know, newspapers, whatever. But... Most of the bigger acts would only do one, and they'd do it in the big circulation paper, which was the Globe. So I was very lucky. Obviously, I was in the right place at the, the right time, and I, I never you know, forgot about that. Plus, we had uh, you know, good uh, syndication. Um, you know, we, I think, what were we, 350 papers syndicated? And there was some guy at the Globe, actually, who would round up you know, copies of, of our articles, you know, like the Jerusalem Times and, you know, the Dublin paper and in Asia. And that's a real trip when all of a sudden you say Steve Morse, you know, Boston Globe in some other country's paper. So that helps you get the interviews too because they know that you're going to be syndicating that. Uh, became a big problem at the Globe because the union never got a chunk of that. Mm. The, the, the management, the owners... Uh, you know, once once it went into the, you know, syndication, they'd take that. You know, they made money from that, but they did not filter it down to the union. Uh, we were paid well, so that's mm -hmm. how they kind of were able to, to shut us up. 
Um, and if you, if you worked at the globe in those days, you made about three to $400 a week more than say the Boston Herald. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's pretty, that's pretty significant. So, um, you don't complain too much when it's under that, that condition. Speaking of the newspaper business, the, it certainly has changed a lot since those, since your early days, uh, with so much happening in the mm -hmm. blog world, um, it seems like the world of music criticism has sort of decentralized to a large degree. How do you see this evolution and how would somebody start out these days, do you think, and sort of do something similar to what you did? Wow. Um, decentralized, that's a kind word for, for going to hell, mm. I think is what you really mean. Um, everybody's a blogger today. I mean, that's... Uh, Kind of a given, isn't it, in the in the social media world? And there's a good and bad side to that. I mean, there's a lot of really good bloggers, and there's there's some just you know idiots out there um, that that kind of corrupt and and taint you know the the whole the whole business. Um, I, I think when it was more of a profession, you know, when it was you know you'd be uh, centralizing your news through say you know, the Globe or, the, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post more, you know, it had a little more believability. Uh, it was a bit, little bit less uh, gossip-oriented, uh, a little bit less uh, attitude-driven, you know, like some of the blogs are just so filled with attitude. But I think that the tragedy is that there, there's been fewer people being hired. You know, music criticism is... Um, now mostly just done by freelance. Uh, there is no staff rock critic or, or even staff pop critic at the Boston Globe now. It's all just freelanced. There's a staff movie critic. Uh, there's still a staff classical music critic. Um, but otherwise, it's just freelance, and there's different people appearing every week. You never get you know, to identify with a lot of them. Um, and I think you you know you you could do that in in the old days with somebody who's writing regularly. One year I had uh, my record was four hundred thirty one violins. Wow! It's the only time one year that the year was the only time I beat Richard Dyer, the classical writer. He had four hundred twenty nine, <laughs> but he would cover a lot of the shows at the Gardner Museum. You know, kind of tea and crumpet crumpet shows. I used to call him, mm -hmm. you know, really mellow. I'd be out there with Jay Giles, with, right. with somebody, you know, puking on my shoes. <laughs> you know, it was a lot more physical right, right. and driving to, you know, Foxborough Stadium. Right. You, you know, I'm a lot more wear and tear on my, my body. Yeah, up uh, until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Well, Richard was, Richard was late, too. We'd, mm -hmm. we'd convene at 3 a.m. sometimes, <laughs> but um in the globe cafeteria would be open in those days and you know there'd be a lot of activity there i mean now they encourage you to work from your home they, you know there's very little office space they left their morrissey boulevard you know the big mothership as we used to call it out in dorchester now they're in town in a high-rise you know it's totally different totally right. different but the art sections have been ravaged uh the sports sections are still big particularly in Boston, because you have, you know, the Patriots and the Red Sox and the, mm -hmm. you know, the Celtics and the Bruins, you know, they bring in the ads, you know, the, the music section. I mean, you used to have record stores, right? You used to have uh, tower records, you know, HMV, mm -hmm. you know, so nobody knows where the business is going. Um, and, and it's, uh, 
but the ad base is kind of gone. You know, you had record labels, you know, buying, I mean, particularly the Phoenix, my goodness. I mean, the record labels, CBS and Warners, I mean, you know, they kept that place afloat. And, and Rolling Stone, you know, that the record labels kept that place afloat. And now Rolling Stone is, is being sold. You know, that's on the block. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you and I can buy that. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> Let's do it. So it, if you're a 25-year-old person right now who wants to follow in Steve Morse's footsteps, what would you encourage them to do, in, even with this environment in mind? Well, I, I would encourage them to, uh, you know, just uh, retain your love of music. I mean, that's the first and, and foremost thing. I mean, and to realize that, uh, um, you know, you're writing about something that uh, is really important. I mean, it's, it's, it's trivialized a lot today. Everybody thinks of music as, you know, American Idol or The Voice or some little pretty face coming out there and, and then recording with auto tuner and you, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not real organic music. It's right. so much, you know, computer driven music, you know, and that's not my thing. And I know that the people write about that and they write about it very well, you know, electronic dance music, EDM, you know, that's a whole big field. Um, you, you know, the, the bottom line is you still got to love what you're writing about. And, um, try to seek out new stuff, write about new stuff as much as you can, um, and, and, and take pride in introducing an act to, to your city or, or your, your readers, um, you know, and just, uh, um, you know, just be, be show a lot of fortitude. I mean, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, because I always looked at writing about music as a calling. I mean, it was it was not something. I mean, how did I ever get hired by the Boston Globe? I was one in a million people. You know, I couldn't just say, "Geez, I was really good, therefore I was hired." I mean, that'd be not true. You know, it's a numbers game, and I just happened to be in the right place at, at the right time and ran with the ball. You know, that's that's what I did. I did my job. Uh, but today, you, you you get a lot of doors slammed on you, and you know you it, you don't make a lot of money writing about music, and and there's a few jobs, and you, you you know my dad would probably, if he were still around today, have convinced me to get out of writing about music because <laughs> it's such a tough field these days. It's right. tough to play it, mm-hmm. it's tough to record it, it's tough to distribute it. Um, it's, it's tough to, to, to sell tickets to, to concerts. Uh, the business becomes so disjointed. You've got the U2s and, you know, the big stars at the top and Eagles charging $1,900 a ticket. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, this isn't, this isn't music. That's just, it's just business. When I started out, I covered what I, 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 before I started covering music, I attended a lot of shows at the Boston Tea Party. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, legendary kind of club in Boston in now the house in the of sixties. Well, and even before that, it right. was it was it was in a in a tabernacle over mm-hmm. in the South End, mm-hmm. um, and then it went over to where the House of Blues is now on, mm-hmm. on Lansdowne. But the tickets were typically two dollars and fifty cents, <laughs> two fifty to see the, you know Fleetwood Mac, Jethro Tull, Man. you know whatever. And then the Who came along and and popped it up to four bucks. And there was outrage. The, right. the community was out. And now four bucks wouldn't get you a bottle of water. You just mentioned the fact that the work you do is a calling. So 
I wonder if you could talk about what it is in a piece of music or an artist that really lights you up. When you know, when you hear something and it connects for you, what is it about that music that does that? Well, it, it's you know, again, it's uh, it, it's it's really just such a personal thing. I mean, it, I don't have an objective you know list of. Uh, Guitar player good, bass player bad. You know, <laughs> yeah. drummer average. You know, I it's kind of, you know, if there's a dynamic lead singer, I mean, that he might carry the whole band. If there's, you know, if Eric Clapton's on guitar, he might carry mm. the whole band. Um, you know, you 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 really, um, you know, it goes back to kind of expect the unexpected. You know, just. Uh, are these guys going to do something that's not on their record? Is it going to, you know? um really caused me to you know get goosebumps almost you know and you you can't that's subjective you know and i i again i think i lasted so long at the globe because i wrote about what i felt i didn't write about oh gee the new york times loved this record you know the philadelphia inquirer loved, loved this record or this concert therefore i've got to like it you know there's a lot of writers i think they get caught on a bandwagon effect Right. They say, "Oh boy, you know, John Perales of the New York Times thinks this this band is great. You know, uh, it's going to be pressure on me to like it." And I, you know, you, you know, you, you probably write a positive review sometimes, mm -hmm. but I would always call it like I I saw it, and that's all you can do. And when you do it as much as I did, it's really this sounds dumb an analogy, but it's like an umpire calling balls and strikes. You know, you got so much coming at you all the time. You know, I'd be out 250 nights a year. I'd see shows 250 nights a year for 30 years at the Boston Globe. It's incredible. And, and you know, you just had to trust your instincts and your experience, which is different for everybody. Um, so I don't have any objective set of, of, of criteria. You know, anything kind of out of the usual I used to love. But also if there's some grander theme like you know the, the socially conscious bands i really really liked a lot like mm -hmm. live aid was the best concert i ever covered because mm -hmm. it had a meaning you know the, the famine in africa it had a meaning it transcended music um and and those you, you know the artists with you know you two you know the artists with with a lot of socially conscious uh, type lyrics uh, you know would tend to to really to to, to win me over you mentioned you two, and that reminded me about something that happened toward the end of your Globe career. It also makes me want to ask you about your relationship with some of these artists, because Bono came to your big send-off party here in town when you left the Globe, and um, you've interviewed many of these people many times. So I'm wondering if you um, develop friendships with some of them. And if that ever got in the way of your ability to make those discernments, you were just talking about, this is a good show. This is not as good as a show. Um, because you would have these personal relationships with them, see them over the years in different cities, interview them and, and get to know them a little bit. Well, th that's a, that's a tricky road to, to, to follow there because, um, you too, I saw so many, many times. I mean, I saw them open, their tours in Las Vegas, the Pop Mart tour. I mean, I saw them open another tour in, you know, down in Florida. Uh, I, I, they, they've been so big for, for so long that they, you know, you in Boston being an Irish city, right. I mean, you can't, can't escape them. 
but the party you're, you're referring to was at Foley's, mm. you know, on Kingston Street, the, the Irish uh, Tavern. So it wasn't a, a big, big party, but I, I did have another one at the Paradise that, mm. that, that was thrown for me, which is kind of fun, but but Bono was not at that one. But I I took a buyout from the Globe, a voluntary buyout. I wasn't pushed out the door. I could have stayed, but I saw the handwriting on the wall. I didn't want to cover, you know, any more American Idol type crap. Mm. Um, and and the last U two was finishing their last night at, at the Garden. They played seven nights, you know, at the Garden. They came three nights early in the year, then two night return, and then two night to make seven at the end. And I met them at the uh, show, and uh, they said, "Why are you leaving?" And I said, "Well, guys, if you would tour, you know, more than every five years." You know, I might mm-hmm. hang around because <laughs> you know that's what happened. All the big bands, they, they you know they would they just stop touring. You know, the Stones only every five or six years. You, you know, and mm-hmm. and 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 then it it just it took a little bit of the luster, I think, from you know, particularly from somebody like me who love live music. But anyway, Bono uh, at Foley's got up. He sang for He's a Jolly Good Fellow. <laughs> you know, he's a he's a nice guy. You know, he's having a Guinness and everything. And but he gave a little speech and he and he said one thing we liked about Steve was he wasn't afraid to kick us in the arse, and that you know was a sign of respect because I didn't I didn't review every concert favorably I mean there were some that didn't work I mean, the Pop Mart tour was was horrible mm-hmm. um, remember they had the lemon you know the the, the lemon this big shaped prop of a lemon and it didn't open Bono was going to supposed to get in the door of the lemon it didn't open yikes you know, okay it, it was like spinal tap it was like <laughs> spinal tap and mm-hmm. and but but the good artists appreciate that the grateful dead you know bob weir once said well you know so many reviewers either like us or hate us but but you call it one show at a time and sometimes we do stink mm-hmm. you know the dead were famous for off nights mm-hmm. and i would i would write it i mean i'm not right. i don't get a paycheck from the band i get a paycheck from the, the boston globe but i think you know the the the, the 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 you know the the better the musician they respect that you know they they know that uh You've got an independent voice, and then not everything they do is great. But but yeah, I think you know you just call it like you see it, and and you you you. I wouldn't say I'm friends. I mean, when Bono's around town, everybody's you know saying, "Well, where are you guys drinking tonight?" And I said, "Well, he hasn't called this tour. Sorry." <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't I don't have his number. Mm-hmm. I don't have his email. I mean, I, you know, it was a freak that he he came down. As you know, I was very honored after the show that he came down. You know, for about forty five minutes, he wasn't there the whole night. Right. Um, but you know, it, it got picked up all kinds of coverage and, you know, names and faces in the globe and all these places, you know, billboard and he picks it up. And when they came around again, I, I, I talked to him, I said, you know, Bono, so many people come up to me and say, aren't you that writer that Bono, you know, showed up at his retirement party? Nothing about, you know, the reviews that I'd done for 30 years. You know, I said, I said, you, I realize how famous you guys are because you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, people talk about you more than me. I mean, in terms of the reviews, they forget all about the reviews. You can read some of Steve Morris's music journalism at the website for the Boston Globe, where he continues to write the occasional story. You'll find show notes and links relating to our conversation at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to The Media Narrative and write a review at the iTunes Store. I'm Rob Hoschild. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.